Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As we begin another week, there is a lot of news out there for investors to focus on. This ranges from economic data, central bank policy, the banking crisis, and of course, the debt ceiling. Yet markets seem relatively quiet as if they did indeed sell in May and go away. So here to provide some thought perspective around that, glad to welcome back for our weekly CIA strategy snapshot conversation, Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, great to have you back here with us to begin another week. A lot to catch up on, as always seems to be the case. So looking forward to our conversation. Good morning, Dan, and happy Monday. So, Jason, maybe we can begin by receiving an update on the markets, which have been trading in a very tight range recently. This has all of those factors I mentioned at the start continue to be in play. So what are your thoughts on the way markets have been behaving as of late? Well, if you just look at the actual market performance over the past month or so, it's a pretty tight range. For example, the S&P 500 it stayed between 4,050 and 41.70. Uh, the 10-year yield is between 3.3% and 3.6%, and the two-year yield between 38 and 4.2%. If we zoom out a little bit and go back over the past year plus, we've seen the markets have been very much range-bound. So the S&P has really kind of had a low of around 3,700, a high of 4,300. What we've seen is that as time has gone on, that range has gotten narrower and narrower. And that's, that's true, you know, of, of the most recent economic data or the, the recent market performance. Uh, at the same time, we've seen kind of realized volatility and implied volatility in equities come down. Uh, the lowest levels they've been in since November of 2021. Uh, interest rate volatility is still elevated, but it's starting to come down. And as the Fed is still on pause, that you know, volatility should kind of come down, you know, even more. Uh, and so you're seeing even economic data, whether it is uh, the month-to-month fluctuations in job growth, inflation, when they were really elevated, you can see really big absolute moves. Moves now, as those numbers are kind of coming down, the moves are becoming smaller, less surprising. So even economic volatility is coming down. So I think that's all of these factors have combined to keep the markets in a relatively tight range. Uh, you mentioned the kind of sell and may go away kind of adage that sometimes people invoke. Yeah, in this year, people could have gone away given the lack of you know activity thus far in the, in the month. But I don't think we've also had to sell because investors have, by and large, they de-risked their portfolios. And that's true kind of across different types of investors, whether it's hedge funds, long-only associated types, um, even re- retail investors to some extent send a lot of cash. So they don't really need to sell at this point in time. Uh, I think really what's kind of going on is investors are waiting for some sort of news to break out of this range, either to the upside or, or downside. And if also on the downside, it's some sort of you know, risk event such as a debt ceiling you know, being breached, uh, you know, the default, a banking system contagion kind of escalating and not being contained, or we see earnings rollover, which is, you know, it's going to be another quarter away. On the upside, there needs to be something, you know, kind of to really drive the markets higher. And I think the most obvious thing near term would be if the Fed said, you know, we're going to start cutting rates better this year, which again is, is, is unlikely. So I think for the very near term, we're probably stuck in this, you know, kind of flat, relatively narrow range across different asset classes. So, Jason, you made mention a few moments ago of the economic data that investors have had to digest. At this point, for the month of April, the data is now in everything ranging from the employment numbers to inflation prints, except for retail sales for April, which we will be receiving tomorrow morning at 8.30 Eastern. So, Jason, can you provide some takeaways for the economic outlook from here based on what we've received showcasing the state of the economy in the month of April? 
Well, if you take the data for the past few weeks, uh, if you were in a soft landing camp, that's kind of gone in your favor. Uh, and we can see this across the board. You know, first on the inflation front, the number that we got last week was right instead of line expectations, even slightly less. Inflation is still high, especially core inflation is uncomfortably high. But if you look in the details of the inflation report, there's reasons to be a little bit more optimistic. You know, used car prices uh, drove a lot of the rise in the month-over-month change in core inflation. You take that out, it goes from around 40 basis points to 11 basis points. Other indicators for core inflation, like shelter, uh, look like they're going to trend lower this year based on real-time measures of rent growth. So that should improve. And even things like the Cleveland Fed, they do a trimmed mean where they, they try and eliminate some of the extreme movements that are, happen every month. It's like, where's kind of the, the, the crux of the inflation story going? And you see that measure, it's also clearly rolled over and, and kind of coming down. So I think that's why the markets have been pretty comfortable with inflation. They've rolled it over uh, and fallen and not being the major concern at this point in time. So the inflation story will not resolve. And so you shouldn't be complacent. is definitely kind of headed in, in the right direction. Then you go into like the labor market. You know the, the job growth for you know, April was was solid. We're not really seeing much moderation of, of job growth. Um, measures of announced layoffs actually declined in April. Uh, last Thursday we got the weekly initial jobless claims. It jumped. It was about twenty thousand over increased twenty thousand over the prior week, which caught some eyebrows because the the weekly data series is one of the better leading indicators in the labor market because of its high frequency but it also tends to be a leading indicator because what you see is companies will lay off employees, uh, you know, sort of as last resort. So as that starts to pick up, it's going to then mean, you know, job growth is also all, you know, kind of decline. But when, you know, economists dug into the details of the claims report last week, a lot of it was due to some quirky data that was going on in Massachusetts, some distortions there. If you eliminate that, it looked like there's really no change in the, the weekly claims. We'll, we'll get a better sense this week it comes out. Um, and the other big news from last week on the economic front was the Fed uh, Senior Loan Officer Survey, where there's a lot of focus on this survey to see whether there was further tightening of credit conditions and bank lending conditions. This is the first survey that came out after the banking crisis began in March. Uh, so the thought was, well, we could see a, a much bigger tightening of, of conditions. In fact, it barely changed. Slightly tighter. Some of the details in, for commercial real estate were tighter. But overall, it was kind of consistent with what, what's already happened, which is, Banking lending conditions have already tightened quite a bit over the past year as the Fed has undertaken its hiking cycle. And this data was corroborated on Tuesday when we got the NFIB, the small business survey, where small business owners, you know, say had also that credit conditions really didn't change month, much month over month. So if you look at that for the banking situation, you know, there's still stress in the regional banks, but it's still very much idiosyncratic to regional banks and even some banks within the regional bank sector. You're seeing those banks, you know, the stock prices are down quite a bit, but the broader financial sector isn't down very much. The volatility of that hasn't gone up very much. So thus far, it still seems to be relatively contained. So between everything I've just said, you know, inflation sort of coming lower, growth holding up, the banking crisis seemingly not, you know, getting worse, you know, maybe you know, being relatively contained, that's a pretty decent macro backdrop that would support the soft landing camp. And in fact, given the growth and inflation data, it was almost warned the Fed to do more hikes. But because of the uncertainty of the banking stress, it's likely the Fed you know, will stay you know, on pause or be on pause with the last hike uh, from two weeks ago. So big picture, the past couple of weeks have sort of reinforced the view that the soft line is still very much in play. And maybe the probability of that has actually gone up marginally versus where we were a month or especially two months ago when the banking crisis began.
So, Jason, to that end, of course, we need to be mindful of some of the downside risks that continue to be in the mix, most prominently the debt ceiling not being resolved before a technical default. Although, as we're recording here on the morning of May 15th, it does sound like there might be some positive traction with respect to debt ceiling negotiations. Uh, Consider as well a bank credit squeeze choking the economy and ultimately a recession that remains top of mind for investors as well. So, with all of these downsides, Side risks in mind, Jason. How do you rank these risks by their market impact? Well, the debt ceiling is the most front and center. It's the biggest headline risk out there. But it, economically, it's perhaps the lowest relevance, and therefore has the smallest economic impact, at least if you measure by the magnitude of equity selling off, of, of yields declining, and for how long. And the reason I say that is, you know, well, there's certainly a chance that the debt ceiling could be breached and there could be a technical default. That's still not our base case. So, this, you know, there's some probability of that happening. Uh, you know, but it's still less than 50%. You know, maybe even the most kind of pessimistic people would put that as maybe a 30% chance. And then assuming there is this sort of breach of, of the debt ceiling, there is a technical default, this may last all of a day or two before a deal is reached, given the, the negative market reaction to something like that actually happening. You'd likely see you know, equities, you know, selling off quite a bit. Uh, you'd see, you know, yields certainly in the front of the curve, you know, you know maybe rise. Long end, you know, uh, you know, ten-year yields might actually decline as a safe haven, slide to safety, but the market impact will be enough that it'll probably lead to some sort of agreement. So there's a really quite small probability of, of having this have a much bigger impact, where you know people actually don't get social security checks, government employees don't get paid, things along those lines, where it will have a material economic impact. That's still still very kind of low, which means, uh, as we've had in the case with other debt-slaying situations, the markets can kind of get stressed for a short period of time. But the ultimate economic impact ends up being relatively, you know, minor or almost negligible, and therefore, you know, pretty quickly the market moves on to something else and recover to anything that kind of goes wrong. Um, now, this doesn't mean there will be won't be more stress and volatility as we get closer to a potential X date, but I think you know that's, that's again it's, it's you know relatively contained. Uh, and you did mention there is, uh, you know, some, you know, I don't want to call it good news, but you know, on Friday, you know, the uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was supposed to go to the White House. That didn't happen. That was viewed as a positive because it meant sort of aides on both sides were still negotiating. And then over the weekend, uh, President Biden you know, made a comment that he thinks your progress is, is coming along. So I think there's a little bit of optimism as they wake up on Monday morning. You know, until things are actually done, you know, we should assume that this will probably be it's a lot of false starts. Um, but it is at least a positive sign that there is there's you know, somewhat constructive negotiations taking place. As for the other risks, you know, a credit squeeze, you know, you know, it would almost be more of a precursor to a recession or maybe a necessary precursor given how the economy is doing if the Fed is on hold. The challenge with sort of calibrating this risk is that uh, when you have a credit crunch, it's hard to put on a real probability of, you know, how significant it would be and what's the magnitude. As opposed to, for example, if the Fed's going to raise rates, it's clear if they raise rates from, five, say, 5% to 6%, what could be the, the impact but if the Fed's going to rely on the financial markets and the, the bank system to kind of squeeze credit, and that's going to kind of drag down the economy, as a substitute for the bank hikes or the rate hikes, we don't really know, and the Fed doesn't really know just how significant that will be. So it's a risk, but it's almost a hard to kind of calibrate risk. Whereas if a recession occurs, well, then we know that earnings are going to roll over, and that's kind of, you know, it kind of has a clear implication. So if you sort of rank these in terms of market impact, for recession ultimately does happen, that's the most clear significant impact in, in drag on economic activity and earnings growth. Um, so that's probably the most relevant. 
if you don't, you know, that can happen without a bank credit squeeze. If, if we do get that, then a recession is, is probably likely. So they almost have to be looked, you know, together. And finally, then the, the debt ceiling is the biggest headline risk, but probably the, the, the smallest actual economic relevant of all these factors we're considering right now. So, Jason, with all of these considerations in mind and given the fluidity of them in some cases, in particular the debt ceiling, what kind of investment conclusions can be made at this time, meaning how should investors be approaching their portfolio at the moment? I'll go back to my opening comments about the market traded in a tight range. It's not going to be easy for the market, at least in the very near term, to break out of that range in a significant way for a sustained period. Uh, on the downside, you know, for the markets to pull back, one of the headwinds for that is investors across different types have kind of de-risked a bit. We can see this in hedge funds sort of, you know, positioning, you know, how much risk they have on in their portfolios. It's quite low. We've, you know, you can look at mutual funds and think how much cash they're holding, which is, you know, elevated levels. With their sort of sensitivity of their portfolios to the market, kind of the beta of the funds, that's pretty low. Uh, we've also seen a lot of tail hedging. You know, investors have bought downside protection. Uh, they've done that. They don't also have to kind of sell, you know, cash positions because if things go down, you know, they're, they're protected that way. So there's a lot of sort of technical dynamics that would kind of limit to how much downside we get unless there's a clear rolling over of the economic fundamentals, which is certainly a possibility. On the, and that's, that's not like going to happen in the next month or two. That's probably still very much a second half of this year's story, maybe even into the fourth quarter. At the same time, there is sort of upside resistance. The market's kind of grinding a lot higher. You know, equities aren't cheap. The forward multiple is close to around 18 and a half. This is expensive on, a, you know, by historical perspectives. If your investors are sitting on the sidelines, say, well, I can earn 5% plus in cash right now versus an uncertain upside in equities. I'm going to sit on cash until I have some sort of conviction that things will get better. And I think it's still like there's more downside risk to earnings versus upside risk. So all this means continued sort of range-bound trading for the near term, maybe the next few weeks into into June, when we get some sort of resolution perhaps on the debt ceiling. And if we do get that and we don't see any more banking issues kind of you know, percolate up and other, you know, any more banks going under, the pain trade for the markets in some sense is to kind of going higher because investors have de-risked. This doesn't mean that we're going to see a big move higher, but I think you know, the, the, the tilt would be in that direction. If those some of those risk factors go away, you could actually see the, sum, the markets rallying a little bit going into June and, and perhaps early summer. That would just leave them even more expensive um, than, than we think, and also it doesn't take away the risk of recession beginning later this year. So you add this all up, you know, the guidance that we've kind of been giving for the, at least for the past couple of months of being cautious on equities, the risk reward trade-off for the S&P 500 right now is not particularly attractive. Not when you can get higher returns on either really short duration, you know, you know safe, ultra safe in the bonds, or even longer duration high quality bonds like you know investment grade corporate bonds. And in fact, that's the barbell in favoring high quality fixed income over equities. He said the margin still makes sense. You want to have both because if we do get a recession, things roll over, interest rates decline, you get a better bang for your buck in the longer duration fixed income. So I think that's the crux of the portfolio. That still makes sense. But overall. A little bit more defensively tilted, up in quality, you know, makes sense. Given all these uncertainties that are going on in the marketplace right now, not a lot of need to take big swings out there, just given the uncertainty and the likelihood that the market's going to stay pretty range-bound for the time being. 
Well, Jason, thank you for joining us to shed some light, provide some clarity around recent market sentiment, the activity we've been witnessing as of late, and hitting on some of these risk considerations as well to be mindful of, the pecking order of them, and of course, guidance around positioning one's portfolio at this time. So always a helpful conversation to begin a trading week. Jason, thank you for joining us here on the CIO Strategy Snapshot, and do look forward to picking back up with our conversation in the week ahead. You're welcome. Have a great week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.